This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. You can't come up with good solutions and let yourself really think creatively if you're trying to be somebody else or trying to be something else. We need to let people be themselves and bring their best selves to the table. How do we create that culture? Gender gives us a powerful set of tools with which to do so. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Suzanne Spaulding, the Interim Director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. I'm thrilled to introduce on the podcast today, the new Smart Women, Smart Power Director, Dr. Kathleen McGinnis. It's been such an honor for me to be the interim director of Smart Women, Smart Power, but I'll be officially passing the baton over to Kathleen. But first I wanted our audience to get to know her a little better and hear more about why we think she's the perfect fit to lead this dynamic initiative at CSIS. Well, thank you so much, Suzanne. And first, thank you for leading the initiative in this interim period. Smart Room Smart Power has been in such great hands, and man, do I have some big shoes to fill. <laughs> so thank you so much. Well, of course, we know that the progress of Smart Women, Smart Power is really due to our wonderful Beverly Kirk, who got it off the ground with Andrew Schwartz and Nina Easton and others. But yes, we've, we've tried to keep the seat warm for you, <laughs> Kathleen. And you know, we're so glad. Actually, it's a homecoming for you, isn't it? Back to CSIS because you started here at the Project on Nuclear Issues, right? That's correct. It was my first job in D.C. after grad school. I was the coordinator of the Project on Nuclear Issues, and I also served as a research assistant on a European defense integration project, rationalizing European military capabilities and defense industry kinds of questions. I was in an enormously fun and powerful experience very early in my career, and it was just so wonderful. CSIS is a, such a special place. It's just a delight to be home. Well, we are thrilled to have you back. And in the meantime, you, you really have done a lot of interesting things, right? You served in the office of the Secretary of Defense, worked on NATO operations in Afghanistan. You worked as a researcher at Chatham House in London in the UK House of Commons, and at the Congressional Research Service, completing your PhD in war studies at King's College in London. Just fascinating career. And so I want to go back to the very beginning to ask, you know, how you got interested first in national security. You know, I'm oddly enough one of those weirdos who knew early on that I wanted to be in this field, although I didn't have a framework for understanding what that actually meant until later on. My father was a national security agency linguist for 33 years. And so his work took us to bases overseas. So I spent a lot of my childhood there and then my high school years overseas. And because I was living on military bases, I got to see the real world impact of strategic decisions and how they're impacting not only service members, but their families. You know, friends whose mom or dad couldn't go to the volleyball game or the play because they were conducting an operation in the Middle East or in the Balkans. So I got to see firsthand the impact that these strategic decisions have. 
And then when I was in undergrad, I happened to have a wonderful professor who saw, you know, my interests and exposed me to this world of security studies. And I was hooked from there. I think it's so interesting, Kathleen, that, you know, it was that sort of human dimension, the impact on people's lives that first drew you into this. And I suspect that is not terribly common, right? Because we think of national security as the big geopolitical global issues. And I think that's really terrific that that's what anchors you in this area. And I'm not surprised, therefore, that you wound up writing a novel. I'm so in awe of anyone who can write a book. I look at a blank piece of paper and I freeze. <laughs> but you actually, you know, sort of took that human piece and captured your experience at the Pentagon in this novel in 2018 called The Heart of War, Misadventures in the Pentagon. What inspired you to write this book? What made you say, I'm going to write a novel about this? So I worked in the Pentagon for a couple of years, as you mentioned, NATO and Afghanistan. It was a crazy time. During the time we were winding down the surge in Iraq and beginning the surge in Afghanistan, there was a transition of administrations. And it was very, very intense. And towards the end of that time, I started thinking, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to tell the story of women in this Pentagon and national security space? At the time, you know, I was a rare individual as a woman in these spaces. And, but there were a number of path-breaking women. And I was like, well, maybe we could profile them. But as I got away from the Pentagon, and actually as I got to London, and I started thinking about the project, I started realizing, or observing rather, that there was this disconnect between the Washington, D.C. policy community and the American public that we serve. That most folks outside Washington didn't really have any sense at all about what it's actually like to do the business of national security. The only exposure you get to these kinds of questions, and especially from a female perspective, are shows like Homeland, which is a very niche part of the national security world and problematic on many levels in terms of representation. But I got to thinking, like, how could I use this experience? What can I do to actually communicate with the broader world what it's like to be a woman in the Pentagon? And so I arrived at fiction. And through that process, I discovered my own creative analytic process how to start using these creative tools to improve my rational, analytic, logical process of thinking through national security issues. The novel became, amongst other things, a contemplation on strategic priorities and how difficult it is to set them and stick to them. Great power competition versus terrorism, Islamic State, and the organizational design of our national security institutions. Are we really setting up our people for success? And ultimately, oddly enough, I didn't intend this when I started the project, that it would have a gendered message. I just happened to be a woman working in the Pentagon. It's an interesting perspective. But after I finished it and I started talking about it and reflecting on what had actually been produced, I started to realize that there are some important things to recognize and to evaluate when it comes to gender and national security that we seem to have a blind spot towards. Yeah, it's so interesting. I'm fascinated at the way in which you Talk about how writing fiction informed your day-to-day -day analytic process. Mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting. And you're absolutely right in terms of the need to educate the general public about mm -hmm. the concept of national security. You know, you and I are both very familiar with the organization that I have the honor to sit on the board of Girls Security, which goes in and talks to high school girls about the concepts of national security, not just to bring more women into the pipeline, but also just to help them be more engaged and informed citizens, right? Finding a way 
to capture some of those concepts in a novel, I think is really smart. And so you started to talk about how that got you thinking more deeply about the role of gender in national security. Was it after the novel that you sort of decided you wanted to have a research focus on the intersection of gender and national security? After the novel was written, and again, in my, my creative analytic process, like reflecting on what I'd written, putting in the story was a really powerful tool. I mean, ever since we've been cavemen around campfires, we've used stories to communicate key truths with each other. And so I had this work and it was starting to talk back at me, in, if, if that makes sense. It was starting to say things back that I hadn't quite contemplated at the outset. And it was there that I began realizing that we as a national security community really have a blind spot when it comes to gender and national security issues. I don't want to be the woman expert that's brought onto a panel like a token. I'm the expert on NATO issues and coalition warfare. I wrote my PhD on it. I want to be known for that. And so I also have had an emotional and individual resistance to even talking about gender kinds of things. But when I think about strategic competition, when I think about the kinds of analyses and strategies that we are going to have to put together in order to succeed in it, it strikes me that we are in desperate need of creative approaches and non-traditional approaches to these problems. We need as many different analytic prisms as possible to start really thinking our way through these problems. We can't throw money at this in the same way anymore. We actually have to think our way through. Why not use gender as an analytic lens and think through what insights it provides. Let's talk about things like bias in algorithms and the extent to which they are, as a result, targeting underprivileged communities. What does that tell us? Let's talk about the rise of online toxic misogyny and how it's having an impact in disinformation channels, sympathies for authoritarian actors like Putin. Let's talk about these spaces. And I'm not saying that we need to have a gender design national security apparatus and, you know, a, a gendered national security budget. But I am saying that maybe we ought to use this lens and see what we can learn about our world, what it can teach us, and then sort of see whether or not we're approaching our strategy for the world and our national security and foreign policy in a manner that's actually appropriate to the environment in which we are operating. One of the things that we've done as we've made this transition in Smart Women, Smart Power is we've taken some of the tasks that had fallen to the director of that program and placed them elsewhere in the organization so that you have more time to devote to doing some real in-depth research and analysis in addition to the podcasts and the live events, et cetera. So really excited about the kind of scholarship that you bring to this position as well. But you know, I'm anxious to hear, I'm sure our folks listening are anxious to hear your vision for Smart Women, Smart Power. What made you decide this is what you wanted to do? And what are some of the questions that you're hoping to answer as you take over this? I want to use this platform to understand the intersection of gender and national security in two primary ways. If we apply gender to any particular national security analytic problem, what do we find out, if anything? Let's just experiment and see what we learn. So we can, in running the podcast, in running the speaker series and other programming associated with Smart Women, Smart Power, I want us to be learning about our world in a different way together. I also want to explore the extent to which we have 
the organizational cultures necessary to empower our people to make the kinds of decisions and develop the kinds of creative solutions that we need for the national security challenges and foreign policy challenges that we face. Our organizational culture was designed in 1949 in a different era with different cultural drivers. And a lot of these legacy institutions have cultures that are arguably stifling for just about everybody. Bureaucratic resistance is quite difficult to overcome on any particular issue, right? It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman on, on this particular case. But gender allows us this really cool tool to understand whether or not the individual is empowered within our systems. And if not, why not? If not, how do we change that? So from that perspective, how can we build the kind of organizational national security culture that we want to see that will allow our people to live and be their authentic selves within our institutions? Because you can't come up with good solutions and let yourself really think creatively if you're trying to be somebody else or trying to be something else. We need to let people be themselves and bring their best selves to the table. How do we create that culture? Again, gender gives us a powerful set of tools with which to do so. So basically what I want to do with Smart Women, Smart Power is get us to better policy through creating a better workforce culture and doing what we can at CSIS to reinforce what the Biden administration is doing in terms of revitalizing the national security and foreign policy workforce. Also through better analysis of the problems that we're facing. And in the analytic front, I know that you're focus is going to be, as we've discussed, on gender and national security, but you also have a broader national security focus, particularly on transatlantic security. So have you given some thought to areas that you might look into in that front? I have spent a lot of my career working on NATO and transatlantic relations issues and coalition warfare. So I'm very interested right now in NATO and transatlantic responses to the current crisis in Ukraine. And how do we balance the arguable need for a more meaningful deterrence and compellence posture along NATO's east with the other myriad challenges that are part of NATO's 360 holistic agenda? Just because Ukraine has happened doesn't mean these other things aren't important. By the way, publics across Europe and across the Atlantic also expect governments to be working on these kinds of broader issues, not just Ukraine. How do we continue to have an alliance that can walk and chew gum at the same time? And also this question of burden sharing. That has been a perennial hot button issue. It's uh, how much do allies spend on defense versus U.S. and do, do allies spend enough? And it's a debate that's been interesting and it's decades long. But it seems to me that as we look at the challenges ahead of us, there's much more to security than just how much you're spending on defense. It's necessary, but not sufficient. How do we use the Treaty of Washington? Everybody's familiar with Article 5. Article 2 is about supporting democratic ideals and having economic policies that aren't harmful to allies as well. So basically, this is a hook for countering political and hybrid warfare. How do we use these tools at our disposal within a NATO context in a bit more of a strategic way? So I'm very interested in those kinds of debates as well. Yeah, it seems to me that there are so many lessons that can be drawn from what we're seeing right now in response to Putin's decision to invade Ukraine. And that will be a really rich field for research for many, many years to come, including looking at, are we really going to see a kind of new world order? You know, how different will it be? And what does that look like? Interested in your reference to Article 2 and the reference to democracy, I think this is a very much a teachable moment for the Mm -hmm. American public about the strength of democracies and the rule of law. So I think there's a lot 
of richness to be drawn from there. But I take your point that there's an awful lot else that needs to be focused on that isn't necessarily directly related to Ukraine. Right. And the intersection of gender within all of that, right? Because the rat lines of disinformation, let's call them, a lot of them have been created and propagated by online misogynistic troll movements, right? And so there's connections there that are important to factor into our overall assessment of the security environment, I think. Should we design our entire policy around it? I don't know. It does seem to me that it behooves us to use these lenses to at least illuminate things a little bit more differently. Absolutely. Well, Kathleen, it's so wonderful to have you now as a colleague here at CSIS. I was not at CSIS when you were here before. So I'm really looking forward to working together. I'm really looking forward to the future of Smart Women, Smart Power under your stewardship. I want to thank all our listeners for letting me take on the role of host over the past couple of months. It's been a real pleasure. And next time you tune in, you'll be in the very capable hands of Kathleen. Thank you so much. I'm just absolutely honored to be selected to care for this program and to take it in this direction. And I hope it'll be interesting, that we'll have fun, that we'll learn a lot, and that we'll grow as a community. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.